Hello and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. We are rolling through the book of John and today's teaching is entitled, John 316 is popular and misunderstood. The most popular verse in all of the Bible is by far and away, John chapter 3, verse 16. We've all been to sporting events where people have held up signs with the words John 3.16. When we go shopping at Forever 21, the words John 3.16 appear on the bottom of our shopping bags. And when we go out to eat at In-N-Out Burger, the words John 3.16 are printed on the bottom of our soft drink cups. Christians go to a great amount of effort to get this book, chapter, and verse reference in front of people. And I believe that Christians do this because they really, truly believe that if more people took the time to read John 3.16, then the world would be a better place. With that in mind, we turn to John 3.16 and read these words, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. That's it. That's the verse. And Christians believe that if people just read this verse, then the world will become a better place. But what is this verse actually saying? Not only that, but who said these words that are so famous within Christian theology? Another question that we need to ask is who is hearing these words? Who were these words spoken to? And then lastly, who wrote down these words and why does that matter? These are all important questions to ask, and I'd like to begin by talking about the context of the Gospel of John. Now, we talked about this last week, but it's important for us to say again. Sometime around the year zero, Jesus was born. Sometime around the year 30, Jesus died. Some say he rose from the dead and walked again among us. And about 45 years later, or around the year 75 CE, a man named Mark sat down to write a biography of Jesus. This biography became known as the Gospel of Mark, and it is the earliest biographical record of Jesus that we have. Some 15 years later, around the year 90, Matthew and Luke independently sat down and wrote their own biographies about Jesus. They most likely had the Gospel of Mark to use as a reference. And then 15 years after that, sometime around the year 105 CE, John sat down to write his gospel, and it's almost like he declared what this story needs is some poetry. What's important for us to know when we study the gospel of John is that the gospel of John is more concerned with allegories than historical accuracy. An allegory is a story, a poem, or a picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically a moral or practical one. And John 3.16 is part of a larger allegory that unfolds in John chapter 3, verse 1 to 21. I find it imperative for us to talk about the larger allegory that's happening here in John 3 before we can discuss John 3.16. 
So with that in mind, let's turn to John chapter 3, verse 1, and read the allegory that John has for us that tells us the story of Jesus. We read, Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. Before we go any further, we have to understand what the word Pharisee means. According to William Barclay, the name Pharisee means the separated one. And the Pharisees were those who had separated themselves from all ordinary life in order to keep every detail of the law of the scribes. So Pharisees are people who have quit their job in order to practice religion. Think of the most religiously devout person you know, and not just like a nice religious devotion, but an annoying religious devotion, right? The person who keeps the most rules. Now imagine if that person quit their job to keep religion. That's what we have when it comes to the Pharisees. So Nicodemus is a Pharisee. But when we go back to verse 1, he is not just a Pharisee because it reads, Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. Now the commentaries that I read informed me that this line indicates that Nicodemus was probably a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was 70 Pharisees who were considered to be the most elite Pharisees, who met in a hall called the Hall of Hewn Stone and sat around and debated and discussed how the people of Judah could best keep their religion. Not only that, but the Hall of Hewn Stone was off the north wall of Temple Mount, the center of Judaism. And so Nicodemus was one of the 70 members, a Pharisee who was a professional religious rule keeper, and he worked at the temple. Now, when we consider that this story and all of John is an allegory, who is it that Nicodemus represents? Yeah, the religious institution. This guy is the religious institution, right? And when we talk about the religious institution, if those words sting a little bit, I know how you feel. Institutional religion is not something that we find to be particularly inspiring, right? But this is who Nicodemus is. He is the representation of the religious institution. So in verse 1, we read about who Nicodemus is. Then we read in verse 2, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Now, according to the Gospel of John, Jesus is the Son of God. So who does he represent in this story? Yeah, God. This guy, Jesus, is God confronting the religious institution. Now, it's here that someone may point out that I am putting too much emphasis on the symbolism of this conversation that John records. But I must remind you here that John is not present at this conversation. Not only that, but John is writing about this conversation six or seven decades after the death of Jesus. It's hard for us to get historical accuracy in John's gospel, but it is not hard for us to see this as an allegory, an allegory of God confronting the religious institution. 
Before we go on, I have to make one other note. Now, this is important because throughout church history, Christians have treated this story as God confronting Judaism. While it is true that Jesus confronts a leader of Judaism in this story, it's important that we distinguish that this was also Jesus' own religion. So if Jesus came to this earth in 2020 as a Christian, I don't think that he would say, hey man, everything's great with Christianity, no critique there. Of course not. Jesus instead would be confronting a pastor or a priest or a pope in this story. And when we take the life of Jesus out of his historical context and just assume that this is the way Jesus would do things for all time, well, that has led Christianity to be very anti-Semitic throughout our church history. This conversation that's about to unfold is not an anti-Semitic conversation. This is a conversation about God confronting the religious institution. And in this story, Nicodemus represents the religious institution. So it may help you as we tell this story to put someone in great religious authority in your life in the shoes of Nicodemus in this conversation. So that could be the Pope or a conference president or a bishop, or it could even be a pastor like me. Nicodemus is representing the religious institution. Let's return to our story in verse 2. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. It's almost like Nicodemus is telling Jesus, Hey, I'm here to report that the institution believes, Jesus. Jesus responds in verse 3. He says, Very truly, I tell you, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. In other words, Jesus hears that the church believes, and Jesus responds by saying, Meh. Jesus responds to the institution telling Jesus, We believe with saying, I am unimpressed with your ability to believe. I am much more concerned with your ability to be reborn. What a strange phrase and metaphor from Jesus. But at the same time, it really fits within the Gospel of John. To demonstrate how the metaphor of being born again fits in John's Gospel, I want to tell you a story about Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr is nearly 80 years old, and he is a Catholic Franciscan priest living in the desert of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Now, a few years ago, he was asked by a student a question. And the question was this, Richard Rohr, can you summarize all of your teachings in just two words? Rohr thought about it for a minute, and then he said, yes, I can. Incarnational mysticism, which is an amazing answer, by the way. Richard Rohr would go on to say, Incarnational is Christianity's specialty and should always be our essential theme. We believe God became embodied. The early fathers of the church professed that God, by taking on human flesh, said yes to all that was physical, material, and earthly. 
He then explained mysticism. He said, many Christians are scared of the word mysticism. But a mystic is simply one who has moved from mere belief or belonging systems to actual inner experience with God. Mysticism is more represented in John's gospel than in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which gives us the basic storyline of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. So many readers are not moved by or attracted to John's gospel because they were never taught the mystical mind. So according to Rohr, John's gospel is much more about the inner experience with God than it is about the historical facts. So when Jesus hears Nicodemus reporting that the institution believes and he says, I don't care, I want to know if you can be born from above, I want to know if you can go from regurgitating statements to actually being in relationship with who and what and how God is. Now, Nicodemus responds to this metaphor in the exact way that the religious institution would respond to Jesus saying this today. Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Which is just so endearingly literal. I picture Jesus hearing these words and responding with a Jesus facepalm. Just, oh, Nicodemus, do you really think I was asking you to climb back into your mother's vagina? I mean, is that really what you thought I was saying? <laughs> Verse 5, Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Now, what's fascinating about this verse is here, Jesus is clearly continuing metaphors. He spoke about a metaphor. Nicodemus responded with just mind-numbing literalism. And Jesus responds that with another metaphor, talking about being born of water and spirit. Why I find this fascinating is because the church has read this verse, John chapter 3, verse 5, and responded by saying, we know what this means. To be born of water and spirit is the tangible sacrament of baptism. And you need to be baptized by water to be saved. See, it says so right here in John 3 verse 5, to which I imagine Jesus looking at these Christians today and giving once again a Jesus face palm. Just looking at Christians and saying, are you serious? You don't get that I'm talking about metaphors and allegories here? Especially when it comes to baptism. Because when you look at what baptism represented in Jesus' day, we have taken it as Christians and made it mean the exact opposite of what Jesus understood baptism to be. To give you an example, you have to know a little bit about the Bible. The third book of the Bible is called Leviticus. And in Leviticus, there are all sorts of outlines, procedures, and rituals that one can do in order to be forgiven by God. Now, these rituals will seem outdated by our standards today, but they were ultimately progressive rituals because they communicated the message that anyone could be forgiven by God. 
These rituals are carried out at a movable tent called the tabernacle until the children of Israel settle in Jerusalem and King Solomon builds a permanent structure known as the temple at the highest point of the city. As the rituals of Leviticus practiced the temple were passed down from generation to generation, the temple officials became more and more corrupt and demanded higher and higher fees to enact the rituals that would ultimately enable people to be forgiven by God. So what do you think happens? Well, eventually you have just the rich who are worthy of forgiveness by God, and you have the poor who feel that they are destitute or condemned by God for the rest of their life. Into this context, a man named John the Baptist is born. And he looks at this structure on top of a hill, charging people obscene about some money for forgiveness of their sins and says, this isn't how this works. And so he goes out to the River Jordan and he begins offering baptism for free so that people can be forgiven of their sins. This sacrament was originally a protest of the extortion of people's shame and guilt enacted by institutional religion. And while Jesus is a full participant of his Judaism, he ultimately validates the free forgiveness of sins as practiced by John the Baptist. So when Christian religious institutions try to claim baptism as a marker of who is in and who is out when it comes to salvation, they are doing the very thing that baptism was supposed to protest. So when we go back to our conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus says, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Jesus isn't talking about baptism. He's talking about something much bigger. That's revealed in verses 6 and 7 when he says, What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished, Nicodemus, that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to see is that the wind is impossible to own. A human being cannot own the wind and tell it which way to blow. In the same way, human beings cannot own God. Jesus wants Nicodemus to see that God is bigger than religion. And institutional religion constantly struggles with the temptation to try and own God. And no matter how big the church or how powerful the religious leader, human beings simply cannot own God. Now, Nicodemus hears all this and in verse 9 says to Jesus, how can these things be? Of course, Nicodemus says this, right? Because he looks at Jesus, who is representing God in this story, and he is saying to him, you are negating religion's reason to exist. And this is hard for Nicodemus to hear because he's given his whole life to this religion. 
Jesus responds in verse 10 and says, Are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen. Yet you, the religious institution, do not receive our testimony. In other words, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, we're trying to tell you how things are, but you guys keep ignoring us. We try to tell you that the universe is much bigger than your ancient books would tell us, but you don't listen to our testimony. We're trying to tell you that God speaks to women too, but you won't listen to us. We're trying to tell you that sexuality is way more diverse and way more beautiful than the boxes you try to place sexuality in. But you won't listen to us. Jesus continues in verse 12 and says, If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? I believe that Jesus says this because Jesus wants every human being to know that if you want to understand the ways of heaven, then first begin with the here and the now and the earthly. Verse 13, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... And we must pause here. And the reason we must pause is because you have to know this story in order to understand the point that Jesus is trying to make. This story that Jesus references begins in Exodus chapter 20. We read about how Moses climbs up Mount Sinai and meets with God. They speak back and forth about what God wants from God's people and then God gives Moses 10 commandments etched in stone. Moses then descends from the mountain and reads those 10 commandments to the children of Israel. One of those commandments, the second commandment, forbids the casting of idols. The story continues in the next book in Numbers chapter 21. The Israelites in the desert have been bitten by several poisonous snakes. To cure the Israelites, Moses makes an idol, a bronze serpent, and places it on a cross. He then lifts the bronze serpent up so that everyone can see it, and anyone who looks at the bronze serpent is miraculously healed with the power of God. Now, as you can imagine, this caused some debate within the Judaic theological community. Here was God saying in Exodus 20, don't make idols. And in the very next book, God allows Moses to make an idol, and then God works through that idol to heal people. This debate and contradiction went back and forth for 500 years all the way until 2 Kings 18, when King Hezekiah said, enough with this idol. He destroyed the bronze serpent that Moses made and said, this is what God wants us to do. The story of the bronze serpent represents a theological paradox. And when Jesus is speaking to the religious institution, he references this theological paradox to set up a new idea. 
He says, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. As a reader in 2020, I have to tell you that I find John's writing here to be brilliant. And the reason it is brilliant is because John is writing this story after he knows the end of the story. John is not writing this story down as it happens. He's writing it down looking back on what he knows about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because of that, he knows that Jesus, when he dies, he dies on a cross. And Jesus, being the Son of God, dying on a cross presented a bit of a problem. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, we read from the words of Moses, for anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. For those early Christians, the Son of God being crucified represented a theological paradox, right? Here you have religion telling us that anyone who is crucified on a tree is cursed by God. And then all of a sudden the Christians come along and say, actually the son of God was cursed by God. <laughs> what? I tell you this because this story is also a theological paradox. And when you look at these two different theological paradoxes of the bronze serpent and Jesus dying on a cross, a question we need to ask is what do these theological paradoxes teach us? Well, I would argue that they teach us that when religion says God can't use these things, God then proceeds to use those things. When religion says those people over there are cursed, well, then you can guarantee that we're going to go over there and find God, right? I think that these theological paradoxes teach us that God is bigger than religion. This is the theme of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, who represents the religious institution, which I believe Jesus would have the same conversation with church leaders today. So Jesus says, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, when Jesus says, believes in him, what he's referencing is that God is found outside the norms and the bounds of institutional religion. That's what it means when Jesus is speaking about believes in him in his conversation with Nicodemus. Not only that, but in verse 15 of chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus about eternal life. Now, we often confuse eternal life with everlasting life. Everlasting life talks about life that goes on forever, but eternal life talks about a quality of life that never ceases to run out of depths. Think about this for a moment. Imagine that God could allow you to live forever, but could not allow you to experience the fullness of love. That is the difference between eternal life and everlasting life. And here Jesus says, whoever believes in God being bigger than religion may have eternal life. This is the setup for the most famous verse in all of scripture. 
Jesus then tells Nicodemus the institution for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. I believe this verse is well known and made popular by Christians because they believe it contains the entirety of the gospel. God loves the world, believe in him and live, or doubt in him and die. That's your choice. Choose wisely. I have to tell you that when you do not have the context of the conversation of Jesus and Nicodemus, the meaning of John 3.16 is entirely different than what John wanted his audience to hear. Because without context, John 3.16 is a threat. Believe and live or doubt and die. It's up to you. Now, in response to this threat and it being the most well-known verse within all of Christianity, I have to ask you, what does it say about Christians when we champion a threat as our essential verse? I think it says that most Christians believe in Jesus because they believe that Jesus will kill them if they don't believe in Jesus. And this is problematic to say the least. But it gets more problematic when you consider the context that Jesus lived in during his day and age. Because Jesus lived as a poor Jew, a peasant in the Roman Empire. He wasn't a citizen. He was just a peasant in Judea. And what the Romans would do during Jesus' day is they would go to neighboring towns and cities and city-states, and they would conquer the capital or city buildings, right? And when they would go and they'd conquer these buildings, they would take the survivors and they would pull out a sword, make them kneel before the Roman army, and with the sword, they would hold it to the conquered's throat and they would ask them a question. Do you confess that Caesar is Lord? Because if you confess that Caesar is Lord, then we'll let you live and you can become a tiny, tiny part of the Roman Empire and you can pay us taxes. But if you tell us no, that you don't think that Caesar is Lord, well, then we'll kill you right here and we'll hang you on a cross. And I have to ask you, does this sound familiar to anyone else? Because it sounds a lot to me like what Christians do when they wield John 3.16 out of context. Do you confess that Jesus is Lord? If you do, great, then you can live your life as a Christian from now on. But if you don't, well, then God's going to kill you. And when you consider that this was the context that Jesus lived in, I have a question I need to ask you. Do you believe that the best that God can offer us through the gospel is rebranded Roman imperialism? I believe that God offers us much more than rebranded imperialism. I believe it can be found in this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. When Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to move beyond a system of beliefs to having an inner experience with God, and that's what this verse is ultimately about. 
Jesus says to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him, believes that God can be found outside of religion, may not perish, but may have a meaningful and beautiful and wonderful life right here and right now. Verse 17, Jesus continues to speak. He says, Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe, which I would argue Jesus is saying is the religious institution, those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And in the last three verses of this conversation, Jesus changes the game. Jesus says to Nicodemus, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. Jesus is speaking about the religious institution. And even though they're religious, that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not they are in the light. He goes on to say, but those who do what is true come to the light. Let me read that again because I think it's essential to this whole conversation. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. Jesus tells the religious institution, it doesn't matter what religion you are part of. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what religious practice or ritual you partake in. All that matters is what you do. And if what you do is true, then you will find yourself in the light. Now, I understand this can get into a conversation of salvation by works or salvation by grace, and I want to tell you Jesus is talking about something much bigger than that. He's trying to move people beyond systems of belief or belonging and get people to have an actual inner experience with God. And he's trying this whole conversation to get Nicodemus to see that religion doesn't own that. And religion at its best will lead you to this, but religion can never stand in the place of this idea that those who do what is true come into the light. To illustrate this idea, I'd like to close with a story. A few years ago, I met up with a friend over coffee. And we sat down and we started catching up. And because I'm a pastor, church inevitably comes up, right? <laughs> and as church came up this time, I could tell that something was different. My friend was distraught. My friend was disturbed and discouraged. She looked at me and she said, Craig, I can't do it anymore. I know I'm supposed to go to church, but ugh. Uh, when I when I hear the music, it's just, oh, it's poor. It, it's just, it's so hard to listen to. 
When I meet with the people, I get the sense that they want me to be someone that I'm not. And when I hear the sermons, Craig, they just, I disagree with just about everything that's being said. And I'm told that I have to agree with it in order to be part of this group. So I have to fake it. And I'm just tired of it. Not only that, but I hear all the time about how I'm supposed to pray and how I'm supposed to read my Bible on a daily basis. But Craig, I can't do that. I try to read the Bible and it's boring. I try to pray and I, oh, you know, Craig, I, I, I just wonder the whole time if my prayers actually do anything. Now, as I tell you this story, I have to tell you it's hard for me to even relay this story to you because I will tell you that I have felt all of these things or parts of these things at different points in my life. So I know how she felt. And if you're listening to this podcast and you're just done with church, I want you to know, I know, I know what it's like. And as she was telling me the story, I remember she started to cry. And I think these tears were from the fact that she wanted to be more religious. She wanted to do more of the things that church wanted her to do. But she just couldn't do it. And over coffee that day, as we were talking and catching up, I remember just this, this heaviness as we had this conversation and feeling it and understanding it quite well and just sharing my own times that I felt that way. So we talked about church and then we started to talk about other things. And as we talked about other things, we talked about new developments in our lives. And as we were talking about these new developments in our lives, my friend started telling me about uh, a recent change in their household. She said to me, she said, oh, Craig, I forgot to tell you, we've allowed um, another friend of ours to move into our house. And I said, oh, great, who's this friend? And she told me, and it was a single mother who had a four-month-old. Now, this single mother had nowhere else to go. Her family did not want her. Her baby's daddy did not want anything to do with the kid. And so this young mother didn't know what to do or where she was supposed to go next. And my friend had opened up her home and brought her and her new baby into her house. And as I was talking to my friend, I said, a four-month-old? Are you crazy? Are you guys getting any sleep? And she looked at me and she said, no. <laughs> and I said, what are you guys doing? This is amazing. And I looked at her and I said, I think the whole point of you going to church, of you reading the Bible, of you praying, is so that you will have a heart that is big and generous enough to invite a single mother to come and live with you. And we just started laughing. Who cares if you read the Bible? if you are calloused and indifferent to those who are in need? Who cares if you go to church every week? If you cannot love another? Who cares if you pray if you aren't generous?
My brothers and sisters, God is bigger than religion. And religion has its place. But when we prioritize religion over the other things, as the institution will try to do over and over again, that is when we miss the point and when we stop believing in Jesus. May we have the courage and the hope and the love to believe in and trust that God is bigger than religion. And may you live a life, an eternal life, that is deep with love. My brothers and sisters, may you see and embrace Jesus Christ. 